and my own life and my own mindset come in and fill up those those places, those hollows in my soul that are designed only to be filled by the righteousness of God. I have filled it with something else. So if I don't have that hunger and thirst, it's because I've not let myself be empty enough of the things of me. And so you see there the sequence of the first, I mean, the, the result of the first three is that there is such an emptying out that we have a hunger and thirst. And as we are starting to be filled, the promise is that we will be filled. The promise is if I have a righteous hunger and a righteous thirst, God's role in this journey is to fill. And so here's the filling. He fills us with mercy. He purifies our hearts. He fills us with peace, and this is not a comfortable peace. It's not a benign peace. It's a malignant peace. Because it says there in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, not peacekeepers, but peacemakers. We are to be active couriers of his peace. We are to see ourselves as peacemakers, as reconcilers, as forgivers, as healers, rather than just keeping the peace. We're not God's marshals. We're God's instrument of peace, St. Francis of Assisi. And so from there, then, we in the filling that Christ promises to bring those who are on this inward journey with him. He equips us to understand persecution in a different way. To understand in a different way how to, um, how to respond to injustice that someone does to us or to a loved one. He fills us with a new way of seeing the pain and suffering that comes to us by someone else's hand. So he says there, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He fills us with a mindset, and we'll get into this much later down the road, of understanding that as I respond to injustice, which is the hardest thing for us to do, is to turn the other cheek. I mean, we are still old covenant Christians, most of us, most of the time. When somebody, you know, whops us upside the head, well, we walk back. It's old covenant Christians. I mean, we, we, it's so easy to slide back into, you know, the Mosaic Law. <laughs> and Calvin Miller talks about the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth kind of mindset, that it is a quick, sure, and certain way to a sightless, toothless world. And, but that's so human nature to do that. And yet here he is saying, if you, have, if you are allowing me, uh, uh, me to come into your life, if you are letting yourself be current with God, then he will empower us with his spirit to love those who hate us and to pray for those who 
misuse and abuse us. And to not give back in kind. It goes against human nature. But he's saying here, you are blessed if you are persecuted for righteousness' sake because you are identifying 2 Corinthians 1 and 2 Corinthians 4 and Philippians 3 and uh, Colossians 1.24 and 1 Peter 3. You are identifying with my suffering. And you are allowing my sufferings to abound in you. And if we do that, the life of Christ will be formed in us. We are blessed because the key to our transformation lies in how we deal with pain and suffering. How we deal with unmerited barbs that have come to us. If I give back an eye for an eye, if I inwardly resist it, then I am just making my image even more powerful and more strong in me. But if I deal with unmerited suffering at other people's hands the way Christ did, the great mystical moment in my life is that it begins to transform me into his image. And we'll get into those scriptures that I just rattled off a minute ago later, but that's what this is about here. As we follow the, the Beatitudes and we come to the end of the Beatitudes, a great transformative process happens in us. And we wind up answering the call, Christ's radical call on my heart to be different and to look different. But not in the way that crusaders were different than the rest of the world when they crusaded to go back and reclaim Jerusalem from the infidels. It's not that kind of set-apartness that he calls you and me to. And the whole rest of the Sermon on the Mount arises out of, comes out of the womb of the Beatitudes. Everything he speaks to in the Sermon on the Mount is birthed here in this journey inward through the Beatitudes to Christ. So you have, back in the book of Job, you have Job, turn over to chapter 40 of Job. You have this man that God described in the very beginning of the book of Job as uh, the most righteous man in all the world. And yet, after 40 chapters, Job finally comes, and, and, and Job has been insisting for at least 38 chapters that I haven't changed. If, if I was righteous in the beginning, I am still righteous now. I have not done anything different because his friends were saying, Job, there must be something that you're doing wrong here. Because God rewards the righteous. And if he is no longer rewarding you, uh, if he has removed his blessing from you, you must not be righteous. Now, in the beginning, Job was declared by God himself to be righteous. So God, Job is taking up the refrain. And he is saying, I have done nothing. I am still righteous. I, I have not, I'm not engaging in any more sin. I, I haven't added sin to my repertoire here. I'm the same person I was. I am still righteous. I am not doing anything wrong. I don't know what's happening, but I know I'm not 
any different than I was when I was righteous. And so after this long 38-chapter journey to where God in chapter 38 begins showing himself to Job. You see, as long as Job was being compared horizontally to all of mankind, Job was really good. He was very righteous. He was so much better than anybody else that God himself pointed it out. But in chapter 38, God starts saying, Job, where were you when I hung the earth on nothing? Where were you, tell me, when I, when I laid the foundations of the earth? And he goes for two chapters just saying these things, where were you? And finally, Job's eyes have risen so far up from his own debris to see a God that he has only glimpsed before and to be overwhelmed by this God and the majesty of this God that he finally realizes next to God his righteousness is as filthy rags. And so in chapter 40 we see this moment. Moreover the Lord, verse 1, answered Job and said, Shall he that contends with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproves God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. I will lay my hand upon my mouth. In other words, I'm not saying anything else. In comparison with you, Lord God Almighty, I am vile. And over in chapter 42, Job answered the Lord in verse 1 and said, I know that you can do everything and that no thought can be withheld from you. Who is he that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Here at the end of Job, Job stands at the beginning of the Beatitudes. He's finally come in comparison to God himself, to an impoverished spirit. He has come to a place of being emptied out of his own righteousness because he understands now that it doesn't matter how good he looks to the rest of the world. And it doesn't matter how good you and I look to the rest of the world. In comparison to the Lord God Almighty, we are nothing. And in comparison to him, you and I need him. One of the great challenges for those of us as Christians today in America is our needlessness. We have so much. Or we think we have so much. And it gets in the way of my understanding of my need for him. Just as Job's righteousness and Job's possessions and Job's blessings got in the way of his understanding his great need, his deeper need and deepest need for God, so it does for you and me here in America. Um, it's easy for us in Americanized Christianity to get into 
uh, into the paradigm that the American church offers to us. And it is a paradigm of blessing and comfort, of a formulaic God. We just, if we do this, this, and this, then God will do this. So we have a formula-based lifestyle with God, a formula-based relationship with God, and that works up to a point, just like Job's righteousness worked up to a point. But the challenge for you and me is to hear the more radical call of Christ on our heart. And to be willing to say yes to a whole new way of seeing and a whole new way of being and a whole new way of doing. Uh, That was the call of Christ on the heart of man then and it remains so for us today. And he asked us to be that so that when the world looks at us, we will not blend in with the world. And we will not stand out from the world as a strident people because we are not called to be a strident people. We are not called to be a people who are always right on the moral issues, but are right in our heart on how we love those who may be immoral and who understand my own immorality as it is compared with the holiness of God. If my morality, which is the best that I can offer, is compared to the holiness of God, behold, I am vile. And one of the marks of God on the heart of followers is humility. And this emptying out process of the first three Beatitudes has to do with humility. Because if we come at the world with a pridefulness, with an arrogance, with a rightness, the world will not hear us, at least not in a righteous way. They will hear us and they will wag their fingers at us and we will think that we are being persecuted for righteousness sake. And the truth is that most of the time in America, the church is being persecuted for its self-righteousness. I'm just going to put it out there. We are. Because when we confront sin, we don't do it with humility. We do it with being right and being judgmental. And so Christ is saying, be righteous, but not self-righteous. And let my righteousness come into you. And let my humility speak to the world as to who I am not what my laws are, but what my love is, what my holiness is. This is what the Beatitudes are about, and we're going to go through them um, and, and parse them out separately. But the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll just take three minutes here to look at this, what he's doing here, he's coming and he is penetrating the mindset of the Jewish people, the mindset of those whom he has called as his disciples, and he is absolutely exploding what they have understood of religion and God and obedience and righteousness. And he is turning it on its ear. 
but look what he what he does here. He is he is doing point and counterpoint. He is is doing a comparison and a contrast with the the old covenant way and, and basically saying what you have done and what you've understood and what you've known is not where I'm at. And it doesn't have anything to do with my call on your life. Uh, look over, just, and you will see this all through um, the, the Sermon on the Mount in verse 21 of chapter 5. You have heard that it was said of them of old, you shall not kill. But I say unto you, Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause is in danger of judgment. Um, go on over to verse 27. You have heard that it was said by them of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if your heart is wrong, if your heart lusts, that is adultery. You see, he's bringing it from the external behaviors to the interior. And he's comparing the old with this new system. This new way of being and doing. <clears throat> he's comparing and contrasting the two. Um, go on down to verse 31. He says, it has been said. Verse 32, but I say unto you. Again, verse 33, you have heard that it has been said of them of old. But I say unto you, time and again, this is what he's doing. He is coming at the very beginning of his ministry, and he is staking out the rules. And he's staking out his claim. And he's saying it's a new world with a whole new way of seeing and doing. And it has to do with your heart. So that the woman who was a sinner, who came with the alabaster box of expensive ointment, oil, and broke it, and poured it over his head and his feet, the Pharisees and others that were in that room were very uncomfortable with that. And the Pharisee said in his heart, if he were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman she is and would have nothing to do with her. That's, you have heard that it has been said in the old times. But the new, which he now was living out, he defended that woman. And he talked about all that she did from her heart to show her love for him. And he said, though her sins are many. So she's broken much, if not all, of the Mosaic law. Because she has loved much, much is forgiven. His is a kingdom of the heart. And if our actions come out of a yielded heart, they will be righteous and pure. And they will find their mark in somebody else's heart and change how they see God. So you and I are called, and we are called to follow. And I'll close with a reading from uh, pages of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this book when he was uh, 31. Kind of blows my mind.
but he understood the tension that comes in a human heart when it answers the call of Christ to follow. You see, we have options as Christians that we can hang back in the shadows of comfort, of the comfort and the familiarity of just belief. We can believe, and we'll be fine. We'll make it to heaven. Or we can step out from the shadows of that comfort zone and follow him. And if we follow him, our life will look different. It will not be as comfortable. And it will require choices of us. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer addresses this. If we would follow Jesus, we must take certain definite steps. The first step, which follows the call, cuts the disciple off from his previous existence. Cuts the disciple off from his previous existence. The call to follow at once produces a new situation. To stay in the old situation makes discipleship impossible. Because if Christ says, follow me, and I stay here and say, yes, Lord, I'll follow you, but I don't move, it makes discipleship impossible. It's a doctrinal system rather than a relationship with Christ. Uh, Levi must leave the receipt of custom and Peter his nets in order to follow Jesus. One would have thought that nothing so drastic was necessary at such an early stage. Could not Jesus have initiated the publican into some new religious experience and leave him as they were before? He could have done so had he not been the incarnate son of God. But since he is the Christ, he must make it clear from the start that his word is not an abstract doctrine, but the recreation of the whole life of man. So he can't leave us in the shadows of our own comfort zone if we are to be the radically new order of man that can change the world and that can show the world who Jesus really is. What a great call he has on our life. What an arduous call he has on our life. But he is the incarnate word of God. And he asks of you and me that we enter into an intimate, deep abiding relationship with him. And if that will be, then we must step out from our prior existence of yesterday or of 10 years ago, it doesn't matter, our prior existence of comfort and know him in a different way. And that is his call. And we are going to be looking at what that looks like in us in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know, sometimes you just meddle in our lives more than we would want. <laughs> and I would just ask that you would change our mindset to understand that your meddling is life-giving, that it's purposeful. It gives us a reason and a hope. It gives us meaning to our lives. It takes us from a random, comfortable wandering into a power-charged, life-charged, purpose-charged existence. Touch our hearts 
and rekindle the flame in us that once so wanted to follow you in this way. Where that flame has flickered, I ask that you fan it in each of us, that you give us a hunger and a thirst for this kind of righteousness. It must come by your hand, Lord, but by our consent. I ask that you strengthen us to come to a place of consent, to do within our hearts what only you can do. And I thank you for each and every person here. I thank you for their heart, for their love for you, and I thank you for their journey.